passage from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. <clears throat> there the Apostle Paul is explaining his purpose in writing 1 Timothy, or his first epistle to Timothy. Um, and there he says, well, I'll start in verse 14 to complete the sentence. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And I want to call your attention to that description of the church, first of all, as the household of God, and uh, uses that analogy in the letter. This is the, the household of God but also that it is a pillar and buttress of the truth. And this is something that features in Paul's exhortations to Timothy as, as a minister of this gospel to follow the sound words that he had heard from Paul, the pattern of sound words in Jesus Christ to guard the deposit entrusted to him, uh, to keep the faith, to correct false teachers. Um, but that also is the mission of the church as a whole, that it is to be a pillar and uh, buttress of the truth, to confess the truth, to contend for the faith once delivered, to, pro- to proclaim it, to make it known uh, in various ways. And uh, the church should show concern for the, the purity of the truth, that it's not mixed with air. Um, you know, if you have drinking water, you want it to be pure, Pure drinking water means it's not mixed with impurities, right? You don't want dirt in your drinking water. Well, we want pure and unmixed truth of God's word as we profess it, as we uh, teach it and live by it. We don't want it mixed with errors uh, that come from uh, men, uh, but want to uphold and support and proclaim uh, the truth. And we come to... Today, uh, in our study of American Presbyterian history, a controversy uh, about doctrine, about doctrine and, we might uh, say, practice with regard to church government, but really the uh, issues of church government, uh, proper church government, is supportive of good doctrine. And one weakness of not having good church government is you open yourself up to the, uh, the, the coming in of error. And uh, there are reasons why Christ appointed safeguards for his church and, and oversight uh, for this very reason. Um, previously, we saw that because of the need for ministers and churches out west, as people moved west, as the population of uh, the United States exploded, that the Presbyterians joined up with the Congregationalists, especially from Connecticut, uh, to coordinate their efforts to plant churches Uh, out west, um, and especially where they overlapped in places like New York and Ohio, um, but even benefited places like out here in Missouri. And uh, there seemed to be good reasons to do that. They were both Calvinistic denominations, uh, differed just in some matters, it seemed, of of church government, and came up with kind of a compromise to work it out out west. There was also the Second Great Awakening going on with uh, revivals, not only out west, like Kentucky, but really throughout the states, uh, different degrees. It looked a little different here and there, but it really swept through the nation beginning around 1800 and continuing uh, really up through the 1830s. Uh, It's called the Second Great Awakening because it was similar uh, in many ways to that earlier Great Awakening in the 1730s and 40s. But 
as the Second Great Awakening uh, came to its later stages, uh, there began to be uh, controversy, um, controversy generally, but also in the Presbyterian Church, the old school, new school controversy. Uh, the old school, new school, that's referring to the two parties here that would develop. There were the new school Presbyterians and the old school Presbyterians. Um, and it, there's a lot of old and new terminology here. There's new divinity, new measures, new school. Uh, really began with the rise of what was sometimes called the new divinity. Divinity is just a word here for theology. Uh, that's why we, uh, you, I, might, I have a master's of divinity, for example. It doesn't mean I've mastered God, but it means you know, it's a master of, of theology, of, of that, that study. Well, the new divinity was uh, sometimes called the New England theology. It developed in various stages in New England and then spread into the Presbyterian Church through that plan of union. And some of the areas where it came to modify uh, Calvinism, modify doctrine, was first of all an original sin, that they came to modify the doctrine of human depravity. Uh, for example, Nathaniel Taylor, which we might get to, uh, denied the idea that man has a nature that is sinful, but rather that sin and guilt can only be attributed to man's voluntary choices. Perhaps his nature is disordered in, in a number of ways, but you can't really call it sin until he he, he makes an actual sin. Um, they came to modify or deny imputation. Uh, they came to deny the imputation of Adam's guilt to his descendants. That came first. And then um, people began to deny the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us um, as the basis for our justification. Uh, that was related also to doctrines around the atonement. So the new divinity came to deny what we might call penal substitutionary atonement, and by consequence, limited atonement as well. The idea that Christ uh, died to satisfy divine justice um, for his people and uh, to die as, as a substitute for them so that justice would truly be uh, satisfied and that righteousness of his then imputed to believers through faith. Um, that was denied in favor of the governmental view of the atonement. Uh, the idea is that Christ died to satisfy the need to demonstrate God's concern for his honor and justice so that then he would be free to forgive the sins of any. Uh, so it both broadens the atonement to be um, really just opening the doors of heaven for now God to decide to forgive whoever he wants, um, but also kind of really altered what the atonement did. And then Finally, the new divinity also moved its followers to the more radical end of congregationalism uh, that would seek a more regenerate church, that would seek to push out anyone um, that, that might be uh, unregenerate yet. And um, that kind of caused divisions in New England society, where the idea was everyone go, should go to church and um, trying to have a Christian society. And that's, this started to uh, disrupt that idea. But also, of course, is not necessarily conducive to Presbyterianism in, in emphasizing the congregational aspect of, of church government. So the first stage of this came with some of the students of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, for the most part, is a good guy, a uh, good preacher in the First Great Awakening, uh, but he also, in some of his philosophical writings, began to um, have some of his own ideas that got then developed by these students of his, Joseph Bellamy and Samuel Hopkins. 
um, and, and in some of the areas just described. Uh, they were very philosophical and hard sometimes to explain, uh, but it proved controversial not only in New England, but also as it came into the Presbyterian Church, sometimes known as Hopkinsianism, <laughs> named after Hopkins. Uh, Samuel Hopkins, not Stephen Hopkins on the Mayflower. This one is Samuel Hopkins. Uh, I, I messed up their names once in a, a quiz a while back. But um, Samuel Hopkins, incidentally, is the grandfather of George Sibley, whose wife started Lindenwood College in town, although George and Mary Sibley became Presbyterians and of the old school variety, but that, that's kind of another story. Uh, Nathaniel Taylor then would kind of be the second stage at Yale, uh, Yale College in the 1800s. I had mentioned Timothy Dwight, grandson of Jonathan Edwards, who had really held the line on Calvinist orthodoxy and Christianity in general, spurred on revival there. But he died in 1817. And near the end of his life, he began to be troubled by the teachings of Nathaniel Taylor, a pastor in town and then became professor of theology at Yale in 1822. And so Hopkinsianism, that <laughs> new divinity, was developed to a more extreme form by Taylor. So sometimes it was called New Haven theology because Yale is in New Haven, Connecticut. Then the third stage... As, as it got mixed then with revival practices out west by Charles G. Finney in New York. Charles Finney was born in Connecticut, converted in western New York in 1821, uh, studied under a pastor there, was licensed to preach in 1823, ordained as a Presbyterian minister in 1824. So you'd expect as a Presbyterian minister that he would be, let's say, Calvinist, you know, you'd expect that he might preach the doctrines of, of grace and hold to the system of doctrine in the Westminster Standards. Uh, and that's what initially people assumed. Uh, he did lead in certain revivals out there. It seemed to be successful. But uh, when there was criticism of some of the extremes of the revivals there, he kind of took it personally and began to defend these new measures uh, that were being practiced, such as what would become the altar call, the idea of calling people to, um, to make a decision and to show it by a physical expression. Like at one point he said, if you decide to become a Christian, stand up. But if you're deciding to not become a Christian, stay seated. You know, trying to force, force an act of the will, a physical expression of it. Um, maybe call someone to come down in the anxious bench in front so that we can really put the pressure on this particular person. Um, uh, also began to have uh, women praying in public meetings and other things that were new at the time, and uh, borrowing a, a bit of this from the Methodists. But then as the controversy developed, it became clear that it wasn't just the measures, it was also some of the theology behind the measures that was faulty. Uh, for example, Finney would come to deny the presence of a sinful nature and argued that conversion is accomplished simply by an act of the will in response to the truth, uh, without a supernatural change of a sinner's nature. Uh, he denied that revivals were miracles, but that they could be produced simply by using the right measures. Uh, he said that revival, quote, is purely a physical result, sorry, is a purely philosophical result of the right use of the constitutional means. Um, just use the right means and get all the steps together and you'll get your result. Um, if you don't get the results, you must not have the right means. Uh, not, not, the, 
way of thinking of revivals that had been about previously. He also denied substitutionary atonement, that the atonement was a payment of a debt of sins. And he also denied then the imputation of Christ's righteousness as the grounds of our justification. Uh, he promoted a theory and practice of revival that was in accordance with his theology. It used extra-biblical methods to try to create excitement and pressure to get people to immediately commit themselves. Um, and then he also developed a similar approach to social reform, uh, that with an increased emphasis on the power of government to reform society, to put that pressure on by the right use of means, this time by the civil government, uh, without really the caution produced by the doctrine of human depravity, that kind of suspicion of maybe putting too much power in government that had been caused by um, a more Calvinist idea. So, in his lectures on revival of religion, delivered in New York City in 1834-35, while he was still a Presbyterian minister, uh, he said that for men to be converted, quote, it is necessary to raise an excitement among them. He said, the object of the ministry is to get all the people to feel that the devil has no right to rule this world, but that they ought to give themselves to God and vote in the Lord Jesus Christ as the governor of the universe. Now, what shall be done? What measures shall we take? Says, one, be sure and have nothing that is new. Strange, the object of our measure is to gain attention, and you must have something new. Uh, so we need to come up with something new to get excitement, to get attention. Um, this would uh, have its influence over the years in evangelicalism. Uh, he did leave the Presbyterian Church in 1836, uh, but not before exercising significant influence, even though he tended to be more extreme than your average New School Presbyterian. And his influence would continue among American evangelicals in general. And this new revivalism would um, kind of become later what people would think of as revival, kind of their standard image of what a revival was. We're going to hold a revival at this tent meeting, and um, rather than praying for God to send revival through the normal use of, of means, certainly eager use of means. We desire conversion, but ultimately it being a, a work of God. So any questions on, on the development of the, the new divinity and the new measures? Yes. For about 15 years. Yeah, that sounds right. So interestingly, later when he writes his memoirs, he kind of reads back his views to his earliest years as a minister, uh, but it seems that no one else recognized them at first, and so it probably was that they developed more gradually um, over, over those years. Um, but certainly by the end, by the 30s, uh, he, was, he was teaching these things. So all of this, you know, we could get into New England church history, and that's all really interesting, but I'm trying to stay more focused on Presbyterians. And this would enter the Presbyterian church because you had a lot of people from New England becoming ministers in uh, the churches. And uh, there was, first of all, controversy with congregationalists like Taylor and Moses Stewart of Andover and between 1830 and 1834, there were 10 articles back and forth in the journals of Princeton Seminary and Yale on these issues. Um, Hodge and Alexander representing the Princeton side on original sin and imputation. And it, one common way that this controversy 
turned out was that they would write a commentary on Romans. How, how, would, uh, how would you promote your views? You write a commentary on Romans, because Romans would deal with original sin and imputation and justification and all these issues. So Moses Stewart uh, in Andover Seminary up north, he writes a commentary on Romans in 1832. Uh, but the controversy hit closer to home with a man named Albert Barnes. Uh, he had graduated, actually, from Princeton Seminary, but he more adopted the views of New Haven. He became a pastor in Philadelphia in 1830, and he began writing a New Testament commentary series, uh, which would make him one of America's most read and quoted biblical exegetes of his generation, as one historian put it. Um, you know, it's amazing how many of these commentaries sold. And, um, in 1834, he released his commentary on Romans, which reflected these perspectives of Taylor and Stewart, and it provoked a 55-page negative review uh, by Charles Hodge. And so in 1855, 1835, Charles Hodge released his own commentary on Romans, um, which, which would have a, a good influence, um, good deal of influence. Now, the professors at Princeton then were kind of engaging this academically, uh, but they were actually some of the more moderate opponents of New School theology. Uh, in 1834, Ashbel Green and about 60 ministers and elders signed an act and testimony uh, that I actually have a copy of here if you want to read it in its full. It criticized errors and doctrines that, criti- that threatened the Presbyterian Church, and it was eventually signed by 374 ministers and 1,789 elders. Uh, as, as an act and testimony that they needed to do something about what was happening in the church, to guard the church. Let me read just two paragraphs uh, from this. We love the Presbyterian church and look back with sacred joy to her instrumentality in promoting every good and every noble cause among men, to her unwavering love of human rights, to her glorious efforts for the advancement of human happiness, to her clear testimonies for the truth of God and her great and blessed efforts to enlarge and establish the kingdom of Christ our Lord. We delight to dwell on the things which our God has wrought by our beloved church, and by his grace enabling us, we are resolved that our children shall not have occasion to weep over an unfaithfulness which permitted us to stand idly by and behold the ruin of this glorious structure. Brethren, says the apostle, I beseech you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that ye all speak the same thing, and there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. In the pre In the presence of that Redeemer, by whom Paul adjures us, we avow our fixed adherence to these standards, to those standards of doctrine and order, in their obvious and intended sense, which we have heretofore subscribed under circumstances the most impressive. In the same spirit, we do therefore solemnly acquit ourselves in the sight of God of all responsibility arising from the existence of those divisions and disorders in our church, which spring from a disregard of assumed obligations, a departure from doctrines deliberately professed, and a subversion of forms publicly and repeatedly approved. By the same high authority and under the same weighty sanctions, we do avow our fixed purpose to strive for the restoration of purity, peace, and scriptural order to our church, and to endeavor to exclude from her communion those who disturb her peace, corrupt her testimony, and subvert her established forms. And to the end, that the doctrinal errors of which we complain may be fully known, 
and the practical evils under which the body suffers may be clearly set forth, and our purposes in regard to both be distinctly understood, we adopt this act and testimony. Um, and so without reading all of this, you know, he goes, they go on to, to describe what had been going on, the uh, a much looser attachment to the confessional standards that people were professing it but not believing really the, the doctrines, um, and list several specific errors, our relation to Adam, native depravity, imputation, ability, regeneration, divine influence, atonement, as well as the uh, weakening and, and corruption of the system of Presbyterian government, that the plan of union had undermined this, that you had people who were not elders, who had not subscribed to the standards, sitting as if they were ruling elders in the presbyteries, and so not disciplining those who were departing from the standards, um, and um, weakening the system that was designed to, to support its doctrines. Uh, so it was a call to action, uh, 1834. There were also, yes, go ahead. So that would be, become evident in the, the following. There were a number of heresy trials, a number of trials over doctrine then of, of ministers, and they do specify more in the Act and Testimony the steps that they were going to take. Um, but one of them was uh, to, to, to bring charges against people teaching error in the denomination. Um, I mean, they, wanted, they were all about Presbyterian church government. That was one of their complaints. And so they were going to follow that system then to try to address the errors that were in the denomination. Um, and sometimes discipline doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Charles Finney left without being disciplined just because it had been too much of a controversy and he eventually joined the Congregationalists. Sometimes that happens today too. Uh, but uh, the way it's supposed to work is you have trials and things are proven and, and there's due process and uh, they, they sought to do that. Uh, one other thing is that... Uh, the doctrinal controversies revealed the weakness of the plan of union and of the various independent societies for missions and social reform. It also cooperated with people from other denominations to support missionaries and to support other causes, but that was all fine and good as long as they were all agreed. But how low were they willing to go? What lowest con common denominator you know, would be too low uh, if, things, if they started to drift apart further doctrinally, uh, perhaps it was better for Presbyterians to create their own agencies uh, in subordination to the church or by the church, especially for missions uh, that would faithfully proclaim the word. So in, in 1835, Albert Barnes uh, was accused by the Philadelphia Presbytery of heresy uh, based on his commentary on Romans. And the Senate upheld that, but then it was appealed to the General Assembly. This was actually the second trial uh, that he was, uh, when he had entered that presbytery, they had had a trial and the General Assembly had acquitted him. Now in 1836, the General Assembly acquitted him a second time after debating it for two weeks. Um, several other similar trials of other men failed to bring uh, about any result. Uh, that's one problem was that not all the new school men necessarily held to these heirs, but they were, all, they were tolerant of these heirs, that they didn't believe that they should be disciplined or that people should be held so strictly um, to the Westminster standards. Now, in 1837, the old school Presbyterians found themselves in the majority. 
due in part to the Southern Presbyterians taking more of an interest now in the controversy. Initially, that was more of a Northern thing that was influencing the Northern Church. The Southern Church began to take greater interest, and that year they had a majority, and they realized that this was the time to act. They kind of saw it as a now or never. This is our opportunity to to do something, uh, to reform our church. And so that year, the General Assembly adopted a testimonial and memorial that documented the heirs of new school theology. They annulled the plan of union as unconstitutional. That, that plan of union in 1801, not only was it a bad idea, it was actually in violation of our standards. It was unconstitutional in a, you know, referring to the church's constitution, not, not, the, not the federal constitution, but their constitution as a Presbyterian church. Um, and Consequently, then they also rescinded all the recognition of Presbyterian bodies formed under the plan of union. Uh, In particular, uh, four of the synods that were in New York and Ohio that were formed under the plan of union and had much of this new school influence. The Senate of Western Reserve in Ohio, only one out of its only one out of every four churches in that synod were actually officially Presbyterian. Um, and so there was, there was much mixture in that synod, and also three synods in western New York. It also cut ties to the American Home Missionary Society and the American Board of Education, um, seeing that it would be better to, to um, ha- have Presbyterians do their own uh, work in, in these areas. So that was a pretty drastic plan. Um, it, it saw it as kind of like an amputation here. And actually, it's very similar to what had happened in the old side, new, Scott, new side controversy, where the conservatives had said, you guys are, are not cooperating with our system of government. We're going to exclude you from our denomination. It's interesting, both in the 17 and 1800s, it's the conservatives or the confessional party that takes the aggressive action to, to disfellowship the, uh, the others. In the 1900s, it's going to be uh, the other way around. But um, it, about 60,000 people were then excluded from the denomination. They were not excommunicated. They're not saying these people are not part of the body of Christ, but they're, they are saying that these are not Presbyterians. They're not part of our denomination. Well, about 170 men then gathered at the Auburn Convention to plan the new school strategy. It's interesting because we'll later have a different Auburn Convention or documents. Uh, in the 1900s. But the New Schoolers declared the General Assembly's unconstitutional. No, you're unconstitutional. Um, And decided to show up as normal the next year. In 1838, then, everyone's coming to this General Assembly, and there's a lot of drama going on. What's going to happen? The old schoolers get there first, take all the seats in front, and so all the New Schoolers have to sit then in the back. And while they're taking roll call, The new schoolers attempt to get recognized, and the moderator says, I don't recognize you. Um, And then two general assemblies break out in the same room. Uh, And so it's not necessarily decently in good order. It's hard to figure out what to do at that point. Eventually, the new school assembly adjourns to, to meet in a different building. And after that, you have two Presbyterian bodies. Um, not only those who were disfellowshipped, but others as well joined the New School Presbyterian Church, either because they held the same doctrines as those who were targeted, or they at least believed those doctrines should be tolerated, or simply because they objected to the means used to uh, exclude them. 
Uh, often that was the case in new schoolers in the South, that they didn't necessarily hold to those doctrines, but they didn't uh, agree with the methods used to exclude them. So in the end, uh, the new school Presbyterians had 1,375 churches and a little over 100,000 communicant members. The old school Presbyterians had 2,000 churches and 141,000 communicant members. Uh, the old, new school Presbyterians most heavily represented in northern areas like New York and Ohio. Now, the new school Presbyterians actually brought this to court, like the courts of Pennsylvania, and because uh, you have disputes about church property and things like that. And in uh, the Supreme, it went to the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. And in 1839, that court affirmed that the actions of the old school were certainly constitutional and strictly just, and that their body was the true successor of the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. Uh, so for what that's worth, obviously that's a, that's a court, uh, not a church court, um, but things began to settle down a little bit as they went, went their own ways. Uh, and so in the 1840s and 50s, uh, you have the new school Presbyterians and the old school Presbyterians um, that would continue to, uh, to operate uh, in the United States of America. So any questions about the old school, new school controversy? When they separated, what was the name of the new school group? Because I don't... If you listen here, it's not obvious to me. Right. Well, I, the terms old school and new school were used to kind of de- de- to denominate the parties, but I think initially both churches were, were claiming to be the Presbyterian Church in the United States right. of America. Um, and so there were names that were used that I don't remember off the top of my head. It was like the Constitutional Presbyterian Church or things like that. The names that didn't really stick, but that were technically used for a time. Um, I, I want to say, I think eventually they did incorporate the terms old school, new school okay. into the, to, to the names of the two groups. But practically speaking, by 1839, they were two completely separate denominations. Right, two, de- two denominations at that point. Yeah. Um, later on, there's going to be reunions, but we're not there yet. What's that? Well, with the Civil War, is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, so just to give you a little what's going to happen. Both of these groups are later going to split north-south, and then both northern groups are going to reunite, and both southern groups are going to reunite. So we'll get to that later on in, in the 60s or so. But, um, but in the 40s and 50s, you have old school, new school in, throughout the U.S. Um, yeah, and I forgot to look up the local history again. I think for the most part, the old school was more represented in Missouri, uh, but I think the church in St. Charles split uh, old school, new school, so there were two local churches in St. Charles. But Lindenwood College, when the Sibleys died, was deeded over to the old school Presbyterian Church. I think the Darden Presbyterian Church was, was old school, but I, I could be wrong on that. I'm pretty sure. Well, next week, I want to look at a little more topically for a few lessons, kind of looking at the theology practice and controversies kind of in-house within mostly the old school side, um, but uh, within Presbyterians kind of mid-1800s. Next one uh, I want to look at is the status, education, and discipleship of children uh, and, and the writings and, and practice uh, concerning that. Maybe after that we'll look at worship and sacraments 
Um, then we'll look at, at uh, the divisions around the time of the Civil War and controversies regarding that. Um, but that's where we're, we're look, going after this point uh, for the next few lessons. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your kindness to your church and care for it, although it's, uh, there are problems in your church as you, we continue to, to struggle and seek your sanctifying grace. We pray that you would equip your church to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints, to, to nip the problems in the bud before they cause greater damage uh, to your church. Uh, we pray that you would help us ourselves to be faithful and to not go astray, that you would uproot uh, any error uh, of, of doctrine or thought or practice from ourselves, that we might hold fast to you and to, uh, to serve you in accordance with your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.